before we get into this, there is one thing I want to address real quick. The story uses the word gypsy pretty freely and pretty continuously throughout to describe this band of travelers who stays on the property, and we're not going to because that's a slur. We're going to use the word travelers. That's just a quick thing. We are the Sherlock Holmes, English-speaking vernacular. Hi, welcome to another episode of A Study in Granada. I'm Jackson Nufflin, I'm a Holmes novice, and I'm here with Mike Knoll, who's not an expert, but definitely a bigger fan. He's convinced me to watch through the Granada series of Sherlock Holmes, starring Jeremy Brett and David Burke, and read the stories along with them. This week, it's The Speckled Band, based on The Speckled Band. Now, Jackson, I don't remember if I said this on the recording last week, but um, I was not looking forward to doing this one. The last time I watched this episode was about eight years ago. I was staying with my sister for a few days, and they used to show the Granada series Friday night on the Muncie Public Access channel very late, so we watched it, and it was a speckled band, and it was, like I said, very late. I had been sleeping on an air mattress, so I was just exhausted beyond belief and hyped up on caffeine, and as the kids, I believe, say, this one gave me a fright. Uh, It just spooked the hell out of me, and I just avoided it like the plague. I I did I cautioned you several times while possibly watching this during the day mm-hmm. <laughs> because how spooked I got, but yeah. And it is pretty spooky. I mean, it's not like it follows level of horror, but it's definitely like one of the scarier Holmes episodes and I appreciate how well they like got into that gothic horror tone. Yeah, that's a thing that um I think we'll end up covering is how they kind of turned a, a somewhat lackluster in content story like a very short story i guess um they took that and made a 50 minute episode not by like stretching scenes but by really going for tone Mm. um and actually like made this a very good episode i think yeah most of the scenes are adapted word for word give or take with you know maybe like a few characters have different dialogue lines and we find out a thing at like a different time for gravitas they had in a few scenes of characters doing things that we can assume they did in the story but we don't see them doing it yeah where like the dancing men we get the scenes at ooh, riddling thorpe manor i believe nice. i know it's in derbyshire so in derbyshire where they're fighting the dancing men or they're having the arguments that we get referenced in Hilton Cubitt's letters to kind of spread the time out. This one, it's much more horror tropes type things of like long scenes of quietly whispering in darkness or like moving through darkness Mm -hmm. and terror. And I think that that really is what's made this a good episode based off of a story that I found very plain. Mm -hmm. Conan Doyle went for, I think, a horror idea in this but just didn't commit enough maybe for sure we'll get into how the story does and does not work in a moment but first so you know how before you've asked me to improvise a story based on what we know of course uh here i think it's your turn in this we learn i believe you're referencing the opal tiara of lady farintosh yeah uh which is an event that helen stoner who's in this story heard about and that's how she heard about Holmes. so i'm curious mike what are the events with mrs farintosh and the opal tiara uh yes the Adventure of the Opal Tiara, a singular little problem of a woman who was found dead, a maid, unfortunately, mm. and 
she was holding an opal tiara in her hand that belonged to her mistress, and they believed that she was trying to steal it and was killed by highwaymen, and that they couldn't get the tiara out of her hands via rigor mortis. And Holmes uh, managed to deduce through several key observations that, in fact, the tiara was placed in her hand after she died. And, in fact, Lady Farintosh's husband had done it. They were running away together with the tiara as a like seed money and when she had second thoughts and tried to get away he struck her and killed her placed the tiara in her hands and returned to make it seem like bandits had killed her uh one of holmes is best before watson's time though so sadly the record is lost on that one yeah until now uh, i'm glad we've done the investigative journalism to uh, recover that story mm-hmm. but the story at hand today is the speckled band and in it <laughs> Children running through the woods with stolen horseshoes are blacked with chasing them, only to be rebuffed by the traveler's host, Grimsby Roylott of Stokes Moran, who looks exactly like somebody named Grimsby Roylott of Stokes Moran would look. Later, he tells his stepdaughter, Helen Stoner, she must sleep in her sister's room while hers is being refurbished. The next morning, she goes to Holmes for help. A short time before her planned marriage, her sister Julia died without identifiable cause after uttering the mysterious last words, the speckled band. Some days before her demise, she had complained about being disturbed during the night. By strange hissing and whistling, Helen is getting married soon. Holmes agrees to meet at her house later that day while Grimsby is out. Moments after she leaves, Grimsby himself arrives and threatens Holmes, who is unimpressed. Yeah, so the sister who died complained of hearing this whistling sound. And then Helen, the night before she comes to see Holmes, also heard this whistling sound, Mm, which is what prompted her to come in. I mean, very good, concise synopsis. I just wanted... That was... A main, a main point of her coming to Holmes was she started hearing this whistling noise right. as well. I have written in my notes that uh, I kept calling him a Grimmy because I just could not be bothered to write Grimsby. That's, no, it's fair. It was quicker. And I wrote that Grimmy looks and sounds like David Bradley, the actor who played um, Arcus Filch in the Harry Potter movies. Oh, man. Or um, um, Walder Frey in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's not like a. I don't have. I'm not building on that. I just thought he looked like him. Yeah, they found a great actor for this guy. He's this big, intimidating man with a huge head of hair, and I think a part of what makes him scary is he's dressed poshly. He still has that kind of like yeah upper class aristocrat thing, but he moves like someone you would you know he's run a, into in a back alley. He's a brute in a tuxedo. Like yeah, exactly. He's dressed very posh, but is clearly a brawler. Like at the beginning, the episode opens on Holmes and like Holmes and Watson's part of this episode opens with Holmes waking up Watson. I'm very sorry, Watson, but it seems to be the common lot this morning. Mrs. Hudson has been roused. She retorted on me and I on you. I'm sorry to get you up early, but this lady showed up and got up Mrs. Hudson early, who got me up early. So it's your turn. Yeah, and Watson's like, "What is it? A fire?" A client. And I just, I wrote my notes. I'm sorry, Watson, but you have to watch me be impressive. <laughs> um, it's probably good that they changed the original dialogue from the text where it's, I'm sorry to knock you up, but uh, she <laughs> knocked Mrs. Hudson up and Mrs. Hudson knocked me up. Yeah, he didn't say knocked me up. I don't you, but yeah, it was like Mrs. Watson got knocked up and I was, or Mrs. <laughs> Hudson, and I just was like, oh no. I like that when Helen Stoner, the woman who's telling the case, um, is we get to the flashback of her and Julia talking and Julia's like, you haven't heard any weird whistling, right? And she's like, no. And she goes, I suppose you couldn't possibly whistle yourself in your sleep. And I just, <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, sleep whistling that classic British 
Malady. <laughs> yeah, happens all up and down Yorkshire. The character is very terrified, and the actress does a good job bringing that out. There's a bit earlier when her stepdad is telling her she has to sleep in Julia's old room, and we don't know that Julia's dead yet, but her, she immediately kind of freezes up and is like, I can't sleep in there, which is the universal cue in gothic horror for someone died there. That's just how that works. And so I like they kind of put in that scene to foreshadow that. Yeah, you're much more an expert on gothic horror than I am. I haven't really mm. dabbled into that genre too much. You're going to be our gothic co- correspondent on this one. Mm. So there's a lot of tropes that this has that are kind of like the the stock tropes of the time. That, the obvious ones like uh, you know the crumbling old manor and the sound of the night, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But also the less obvious things like hair turning white, out of fear, people dying of mysterious causes. Twins are a big thing. Gothic horror had a lot of like twins and doublings and like evil twins and that kind of thing. Sure. And uh, Helen and Julia are twins in the story. I don't think they are in the show because it's it's easier to have like two sisters. Yeah, there's a um, two year difference, I believe. If you're reading Gothic horror at this time, you're like, oh, uh, this is these are these tropes very obviously. It's kind of like how like in a modern action movie, you you're gonna get the requisite character walking away from an explosion without looking back. Mm-hmm. And that was my favorite scene in this episode when Holmes blows up Stokes Moran and doesn't look back like yeah it was really cool they actually blew up an old british manor for that that was like that was a bit expensive but jeremy brett does the uh the brett smile as it blows <laughs> <Yes>. up <laughs> sorry there's a cat <laughs> yeah no sadly that doesn't happen um but <laughs> that would have been cool as hell before i knew how the murder was gonna go i thought there was a chance that uh julia had actually died of fright because this is the victorian era where you can you know die of fright if you're a woman that's just mm-hmm. how that works or if you're um Percy Phelps from the Naval Treaty. It's too strong of a shock. You just you stop working entirely. So there's this weird bit where Grimsby comes in and like bends a fire poker to show how like strong yeah. he is, and then Holmes like bends it back. I love to see how Holmes is so like he like is trolling Grimmy at this mm-hmm. point too because he comes in. What has she been saying to you? It is a little cold for the time of year. What has she been saying to you? But I have heard that the crops promise well. Just completely ignoring that this dude's threatening him until, like, the very end where he's like, Your conversation really is most entertaining. If you would close the door on your way out, as there is a decided draft. <laughs> yeah, Jerry Brad delivers that so well. Because, like, he's so full of disdain, but also, like, technical politeness. Which is nice. It's Yeah, I love that he, um, and this also, it's just, like, sheer amusement. That this mm-hmm. guy showed up to threaten him. Like, okay, well, now I know there's something going on. Like, the lady yeah. showed up and, like, you know, I thought maybe it could have been this or that or the other thing. And, I'll, you know, I'll go check it out, but I'm not super worried about it. And then this dude showed up and was like, fuck off. And I was like, well, okay, now I know I got to go look at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now I know it's foul play. Because you don't threaten a, de- a detective unless you don't want him detecting things. Um, if you're hearing mysterious bells, that's because someone installed a phantom bell pull in this room and uh covered it in fur hi hey kitten there yep there is now a kitten welcome the third surprise co-host to our podcast so you can't see it because this is a podcast but her collar actually does have speckles on it so there you go anyway so i think it's in this scene that watson's like well there's all these travelers on site so it's probably those guys and holmes is like maybe in the story uh holmes is the one who's saying it's probably that but here is watson saying that which Mm -hmm. you know Tells us that that's wrong, obviously. Right. Because uh, Watson's never right about these things. Although he does suggest poison, which is actually true. Technically, no, it's venom. It's okay, great. 
don't know. I have some thoughts on this as mm. well because they give Watson this incorrect guess. And at some point, I think in this one as well, in the story, Holmes is compassionate to her plight and all this stuff. Oh, it's when um, R- Grimmy leaves and she, Holmes says, uh, I hope that no harm will come to her for her the imprudence of being followed here or something mm. like that. And in the show, Watson says it. And I think that that is the show being like, okay, well, we've got our characters. Holmes is the analytical one, and Watson's the one that is kind of wrong about stuff and is the more compassionate one. And I think that's why they swapped those lines around was because they were like, well, this is about literally the only characterization we have for Watson. So Also in this episode, I, think they, I don't think it's in the original story. Watson at one point says, hey, shouldn't we get her away from this place? And Holmes is like, ah, no, I, I have a plan. But I like that Watson is like fully aware that she's in danger directly from from this guy she's living with. They should probably remove her from the situation while they solve it. I understand that Holmes is plan. Like in a way they need her to be at the house to show them around. But I also like I'm not trying to stand up for the decision of no, let's leave her in this abusive, possibly murderous household. But I do like that the show was like, why why didn't anybody suggest this? This person should be in witness protection if this was the modern day or something along those lines. I do appreciate that Holmes addresses her as being brave because she she is like she's staying in a house with someone who is pretty clear as a murderer. We talked about the house. So the next part of the story is that Holmes and Watson take a train to Stokes Moran because uh, Grimsby's going to be away for the day. Holmes reveals that he's learned that uh, in the wife's will, Grimsby is basically left, left with nothing if Helen gets married because like the, all the money passes to her. Mm-hmm. Watson has learned that uh, Grimsby was sent to jail after beating his servant to death on dubious charges. Yeah, yeah, dubious thieving charges. Dubious thieving charges. Um, Good band name. <laughs> right? Um. And yeah, so he came back to England, was kind of embittered, and he had a lot of Indian animals sent to him, so he's got like a leopard and a baboon. This will come up later. They look over Julia's bedroom and find that they, there is a dummy bell pole. It doesn't ring. And the bed is both to the floor. And there's also a ventilator that opens the Royalist bedroom, where he finds an iron safe and a saucer of milk. And the safe is ostensibly full of papers or whatever, but they can't open it. There's also a small, like a leash, like a dog leash, but mm, yes. there's a loop at the end that is very small and much too small for a dog. There's less to talk about here because it's kind of uh, clues and facts in the case type thing. I wrote down, is this the most active investigation we've had in the series so far? Them doing things and investigating on screen, not like, I spoke with a landlord or I, you know, I, I looked up these papers, etc., etc. It's a lot of moving around places, looking at things, testing theories. I'd say maybe this or the Crooked Man is the most active investigation we've had. There's a bit in Dancing Men, but that's mostly like at the end. So it's yeah, less. This is more of an active as like it's happening, trying to prevent this investigation of going around, looking at things, testing theories, as opposed to, hey, Watson, go stand behind that big pile of sticks and see what's up. <laughs> stand badly behind those sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a line written down here that I really loved. Holmes is sitting in a chair in Julia's room. They're talking about the bell pole, like the bell rope, and how it's not connected to anything. It's next to a ventilator between these two rooms. And Holmes just kind of nods and then says, You will excuse me while I satisfy myself as to this floor. And then throws himself onto the floor (laughs) with a magnifying glass looking at the boards. It's a very Holmesy thing to do to have absolutely no compunction about making a fool of himself for his own curiosity. And not think of it as making a fool of himself because he's investigating a theory. Off the back of last week's discussion that I had about um, 
Holmes being up against the very British, like, oh, no, I can't do that, or I can't tell you that, I can't do this, I can't tell you that, it was scandalous, and how Holmes has, like, no time for bluster or anything. It's like, I need to investigate the floor, so I'm going to lay it out on the floor. I was sure they disqualify that, too. Like, I was also thinking, hmm, maybe there's a trap door, a secret passageway, and they figure out, nope, that's not a thing. Holmes doesn't, like, say, I'm going to look for a trap door now. He just kind of just looks down on the floor and, like, investigates. And, like, the trust is enough to figure that we'll assume what he's doing from that without having to have our hands held. It's also in vain with the solitary cyclist where he takes her hand and says, you'll excuse me, I'm sure. It's professional curiosity. Like, he understands that this isn't what, quote-unquote, like, normal people do, and he's going to look mad doing it. So he's, like, basically prefacing of, like, I promise this is important. Even though it's the daylight, it's well lit, all that jazz, there's still this feeling of tension because we don't know when Grimsby's coming back. So even these scenes kind of have this anxiety to them, and I appreciate that. Also, a cool set dressing thing is that in Grimsby's room is this ceramic head of Pan. That was a thing at this time that there's a revival of interest in the great god Pan as a figure, and kind of that was associated with um, indulgence and abandon and hmm. freedom viewed by a society that thought that being too free was a bad thing. So I like that they have that in Royalist's room. In the story, we do get Helen saying that often um, Grimmy would go down and hang out with the travelers, often like leaving with them for days at a time. And that, I think, maybe plays in with that. Watson hasn't had breakfast or, or lunch, and he's, he's like, I just, I want food. Holmes, please. Why do we have to sit here in this, in this old shack? I want dinner. It's not as much a recurring theme, I don't think, in the stories. I mean, they do mention a lot how, like, when Holmes is on a case, he'll go days without food or sleep and not, like, miss a beat because he's Holmes. And... Yeah. He's sustained by his great intellect and the energies that that creates in him. But, like, I love that in the show, they've just made Watson the long-suffering, like, but I have to eat, Holmes. <laughs> it's a really endearing character trait. That's coming up, I think, in the next little bit when they, they end up going on stakeout. And they're yeah. going to go to, like, an abandoned house. And Watson's like, we shall have dined, shall we? And Holmes kind of rolls his eyes and goes, is there a village inn? Like, <laughs> fine, we'll get Watson some dinner. <laughs> so as we've alluded to there's a shack that's kind of on the property um it's, it's abandoned or disused whatever shell house i believe is the name shell house indeed yes that's where they keep the shells um yep that's what that means <laughs> yeah uh shell silverstein lives there on his off days and they, they can see julia's rooms from there so they uh, they hide out in there and watch the rooms and god hi I, you get dinner in like half an hour i'm sorry watson um yeah, they hide out in there, and, and Grimsby comes back. He has dinner with Helen, and it's very tense. I left early. Yes, I know you did. So that I should be back by lunchtime. I had some things to do here this afternoon. My trip was a whim. You always were a good little liar. You excuse me, I have a terrible headache. He knows she's lying, but he doesn't quite know what all's up. So she goes to her room, and he goes to sleep, and she signals him to come to her room, then goes back to her other room. They sit in the room, and it's very tense, and then Holmes strikes something off camera because they don't have the budget for it, and there's a horrible scream. It turns out that there is a snake, and it's now turned back onto Grimsby. Uh, he's dead. He's dead, Jim. They figure that they've been training this snake to be his assassin more or less he's using this like the whistle the saucer of milk to train it which is pretty cool and keeping it in the safe and 
it like slides along the bell pole down onto the bed grimsby will like send it basically every night figuring that eventually it'll bite somebody and that's the speckled band to which julia was referring which is a very unhelpful thing to say like honestly like you could have said it was a snake but we'll get to that so he's dead helen goes to live with her aunt and then get married and whatever and watson has this great bit where he's like so you holmes were indirectly responsible for his death I cannot say that it is likely to weigh very heavily on my conscience. It, it's more just like a declarative statement than an accusatory statement, correct? Yeah, and it's like kind of like Watson's realizing this and it's kind of... Yeah, he's working it through himself. Yeah, yeah. kind of processing the fact that his friend killed a guy, sort of. A bad man. Yeah, oh, oh definitely a bad man. Like, no, no, I don't. 100% I don't, I don't think that like I need to stand up for Sherlock Holmes on this. I was... This is kind of the like most tense horror bit of the thing because they're creeping around at night and there's the snake and all that jazz. I feel like Jeremy Brett invented ASMR in the scenes where he's whispering to Watson. God, right? Because it is the most soothing, like crystal clear whispering voice I've ever heard in my life. When a doctor goes wrong, he's the first of criminals. He has nerve. He has knowledge. Palmer and Pritchard were among the heads of their profession. This man strikes even deeper. There's this great bit where Holmes is kind of apologizing to Watson because he's like, hey, there might be danger here. I really have some scruples taking you tonight. There's a distinct element of danger. If I can be of assistance. I love that, of Holmes being like, this is going to get really dangerous, and Watson just like, can I be of help? Then I don't care. That's a great microcosm of their relationship mm-hmm. that sometimes Holmes brings him because he needs someone who can, someone else who can be backup and he's sorry that's dragging people into this who don't deserve it. I read a, a thing on the Dr. John Watson, that wiki page where I read off the stuff about his uh, war injury and service. And there's the idea that a lot of people play Watson as like a fool who doesn't, mm. And like he's just kind of bumbling, and he's there for almost comedy. This is one reason I like this series' take on Watson so much, is that Holmes considers Watson to be his friend, like a very good friend and a trusted companion, and someone that he can rely on. And that's why he brings him a lot. And I think that we get a lot of times where maybe Holmes even forgets that Watson's like a good man. He has his foibles. But by and large, it's like this scene where he says, this is really dangerous. And Watson just responds with like, well, okay, but can I be of help? Because if I can, then like I'm going to stick around. Or in Scandal in Bohemia. You don't mind breaking the law? Not in the least. Not running the chance of arrest? Not in a good cause. Watson's willing to do what is right, even if it's technically illegal or dangerous. This is one of those scenes where we kind of refocus that. We get back to that idea of like, he's not just Holmes's biographer and friend and there to be impressed. Like he's there also because he's useful and brave. And that's about it. This episode's pretty good, but it's kind of clear that they didn't quite have the budget to like have Holmes actually fighting a snake. It's all kind of off screen. There is, if you actually watch the credits, I accidentally watched more into the credits than I normally do. And they do show more of the snake and Holmes kind of fighting the snake. But it's much more that exaggerated style like we saw in the knife fight in the Naval Treaty in Shadow of Rhett overdoing the acting a little bit. But Yeah, I kind of I feel like they might have like filmed those bits and realized it didn't look that good. So they didn't put them in or they like put them in for the credits. They probably couldn't because I don't know if that was like a real venomous snake. I doubted it because they had it wrapped around the neck of the actor who played Grimsby Roylet. Even if he like I doubt that health and safety would have allowed that. But 
um, my guess is that they just probably couldn't get the shot and or health and safety wouldn't let them actually put them in the same room and like hitting the snake. Yeah, that would probably like there might be some like like animal rights kind of stuff with that, which yeah. fair enough. And probably getting it to actually do what they wanted to do of go right back up the, the bell pole. And I don't mind too much. It's fine. It's, it's, a, it's a little goofy, but it's not like the worst. Oh, there's also this really great bit that's um, also in the in the story where they're creeping through the through the yard over to the manor, and they're kind of stop with a baboon for a second, and Holmes <laughs> just goes, "This is a nice household." I appreciate that how he's just kind of a little bit over this. Yeah, the way Brett put the way the the spin Brett puts on that line is so good. He's like Watson's like, "What is that?" And he goes, "I believe that's the baboon," and then he just goes, "This is a nice house." <laughs> <laughs> or something like I can't even do it right. It's just this very like sarcastic. Why do they have a baboon? Oh, we also have this recurring thing that Grimsby's heard of Sherlock Holmes too, and he calls him Your Holmes the meddler. Holmes the busybody. Holmes the Scotland Yard Jack in office. <laughs> Which is a really one amazing delivery of those lines. And also I like the recurring thing where people know who Holmes is. I meant to talk about this in the Dancing Men, and we will come back to it again. And it is the kind of the spectrum of reaction to Holmes as his reputation. So we got Grimmy was like, I've heard of you and I'm not having it. And a lot of London police officers are like, I've heard of you and I don't need this. It's a simple murder. I got it. I don't need you coming in and be worried. And then we get the country police officers who are just delighted. Um, in The Dancing Men, in the country we have like inspector martin who as holmes is like oh look the third bullet hole he's like oh good lord and it was like we know this window wasn't open very long well how could you know that the candles haven't guttered and he just laughs goes excellent excellent like i get to see sherlock holmes doing the sherlock holmes thing excellent and i just we'll see that throughout and, and there's you know variations and there's anomalies in that but i just i found that generally the country inspectors are just like oh my god it's sherlock holmes and i get to watch him be sherlock holmes on my case like Ooh. nothing ever happens in this town and mm. now suddenly sherlock holmes is here on this like this case that seemed very plain to us like Ooh, we're going to get some excitement. Like, this is a case I'll get to talk about working with the Sherlock Holmes, you know, for 15 years. I might never have to buy a drink again because I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, they'll buy me drinks to tell this story. And in London, it's like, oh, God, Holmes, just this one time, can it be a suicide? <laughs> Could it please be that the wife stabbed her husband? Oh, no. You see, the, the brother's yeah. uncle's nephew trained a lion to stab a man. And then the um, villains, if you will, are always like, I've heard of you. Don't mess with me. That kind of thing. And it just, I don't know. It, it always delights me when the country detectives are just excited. It's like the circus came to town. Speaking of the circus, one last thing. I do want to say that Holmes has a wonderful bit where he talks about how the snake bit its master in its snakish temper. And I have written down, Holmes understands because Jeremy Brett is a snake in human form. He has this reptile and human skin vibe oh, yeah. to his acting. And I really like that about him. Like if the internet had existed, like it does now back then, there would be a lot of websites about how Jeremy Brett is a reptilian. Mm -hmm. And I will probably start one of those. <laughs> Good. Um, so I want to talk about for a minute, and mm -hmm. we kind of touched on this a little bit, two things that kind of tie in together. The first one being that I really liked that this episode took a story that didn't have a lot. There were a lot of elements to it, but they all fit neatly enough together that this was kind of a story just of describing walking around. And I know that a lot of the stories have that. It was just a lot of Watson explaining what they saw and then Holmes explaining how he saw more or deduced more. 
and then we solve it. And and that's not bad. And in the solitary cyclist, at least the episode, we got a lot of parts where like Watson went and did this while Holmes was doing this, and like there was movement and, and like an investigation. And this one was much more. We showed up, we looked around, we solved it. And I feel like the episode really, instead of showing us way too many scenes of the extra material, like we did with like the the cubits, which was a good amount of like they took scenes that were referenced and showed us those full scenes for the fifty minutes. This one did a lot of good work making it gothic horror. They were doubled down on the tone instead mm-hmm. of trying to stretch the material, and I think that that's really what made this like a very enjoyable, kind of interesting oddball episode for the series so far, like the season at least, of suddenly we have like a horror episode. Yeah, it's kind of like this might have like been the one that premiered near Halloween or whatever. Mm-hmm. We kind of went off, the, we jumped off of the Crooked Man. Mm. I gotta figure out how to phrase these better. We, we jumped off the adventure of the Crooked Man. Yeah, where it had a few like spooky elements to it. The scenes where he's in doorways with like lightning and stuff like that, and went full horror on this one. And I don't, I just, I think that that was a very smart move on their part. And it's like the Naval Treaty, or unlike the Naval Treaty, where they showed us meticulously everything that happened. You know, the scene where Percy's frying an egg the morning he goes into work and gets the Naval Treaty, whatever. Like, just so many scenes. This one was like, we're going to do this, but we're going to like do longer cuts in darkness and mm-hmm. stuff like. All that kind of stuff. We're going to have characters very slowly turning the lights down so they're only illuminated by moonlight and that kind yeah. of thing. Which I've written down the Foley sound of a match being blown out in this. Like, I could listen to that forever because it's just <laughs> such a neat sound. I appreciate that you kind of focus more on the sound aspect. I am i don't have great headphones, so sure. I don't really pick up on that kind of thing. So I, I trust you for these things. But somebody really cared about what they were making and wanted to like do their very best, but in a very like clean, smooth way, not in a unnecessarily flashy way uh and that ties then into the idea i have here of this story a lot of the spookiness or danger even comes from this idea of like otherness like the travelers are originally they think that they're the ones who are maybe doing this and they're just like distrusted and they're ruffians and they're thieves and all that and then the animals the leopard in this in the story it's a cheetah and in the episode it's a leopard and the baboon are like well, we have to avoid the leopard, obviously, and the baboon. And like, I don't know, it's just a lot of like very foreign. Like Stoke Moran seemed very foreign to the English countryside, mm-hmm. and that I think did separated this from some of the other home stories where he explores a manor or is in the British countryside. It's very much like a, a little slice of India here in the middle of Britain, where mm-hmm. there's a murder afoot. Right, and I like that in the end, it's just the most quintessential British mystery thing ever that like a guy murdered his stepdaughter for her inheritance like the while the methods and the trappings were othery it wound up being that all along it was just a fairly standard murder with some accoutrements and i think that's kind of fun i think it's kind of a good misdirect there is one thing i want to point out here at the very end with the horror element and the just kind of darkness um did helen stoner die when the story starts because watson mentions in the story that he's going to tell it now because the lady in question has passed. And if that's the case, this story takes place in 1883. And I'm pretty sure these stories were published around 1888. So she only lived for like five more years. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not in the episode, but it's in the story that this is that Watson says like directly. Um, yeah. Helen's dead. And also like her, um, her stepfather died in the course of this investigation. So you kind of know that death is coming. And that's also a very Gothic horror thing to kind of open with like, <laughs> everyone's dead. <laughs> yeah. 
everyone's dead. Um, uh, you know, like the the woman I love is dead. Um, my dog is dead. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Whatever. <laughs> It's kind of sad that, like, this woman who is, you know, brave and courageous and managed to, through gumption and determination, make it out of this dangerous situation, died anyway, you know, not much longer afterwards. I kind of wish that she had gotten to live a full happy life, but I guess that's just kind of how things happen. I'm glad that it's not specific about what happened to her. All right, so that brings us, Jackson, to the point of the show where we take the reigning champion of facial hair in the first season of the Granada series, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the king of Bohemia, and we pit him against the best facial hair of this episode. Mm-hmm. There's really only two options in my book, if, if we exclude Watson, obviously, right. which we haven't really counted him before, or he's lost every episode to date, <laughs> and that is either Dr. Grimsby Roylet or the little bit we see of Helen's fiancé, Percy Armitage. Roylet has good hair, but it's more that the hair on top of his head is all like wild and reddish blonde and cascades around him like a halo uh, that makes him seem like some sort of terrifying wild man more than his mustache. I liked Percy's mustache very much because it's very thin and small mm-hmm. and I would say almost clearly fake. Like in the yeah. early seasons of Poirot where David Suchet has clearly like a wax mustache on. Right. It's a decent mustache, but it's just kind of generic. It's not like it doesn't have its own like duchies the way that uh, Bohemia's mustache. Well, yeah. I mean, so, but the question then is: so, are we going with Percy Armitage as the winner of the Speckled Band, or is it Doctor Grimsby Roylet? Because you have to decide who wins, and then they go head to head. I mean, they're not going to win. We've already basically given that away. Formalities have to be observed. Of course, uh, I think I'm going to give it to. Um, Armitage, because it's just a, a nicer mustache of the two. It's more distinct. Congratulations, Percy Armitage, on winning this week's Speckled Band Must Clash. However, unfortunately, in the season standings, you fall yet again to the King of Bohemia. Mm. I don't know if he's ever going to be on CD. We've got one episode left. and Do we have anything we want to plug? Actually, I have a, a tie-in thing. By sheer chance, the week we're, we're recording this, and it's probably going to come out much after that, but... I'm also recording a episode about The Little Mermaid on my uh, podcast, Gratuitous Pausing, where we look at different Disney movies and see what's doing better. I bring it up because both this and Little Mermaid have a character named Grimsby in it. Okay. Yeah. A, a very tangential tie-in. <laughs> there's you know, both old men who want to, who have strong feelings about sure. the men in their care getting married. And that's uh, Gratuitous Pausing. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. I also host a podcast called Equalizers with friend and co-host Madison Jones, where we take movies that never got a sequel or a prequel, either because they were very good and didn't need one, or because they were very bad and didn't deserve one, and we come up with an idea for one. Uh, You can find us on all social media at The Equalizers by searching E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S, like in sequel. Uh, By now... I, we're recording this so far ahead, and we're getting kind of behind on recording, but I know for sure our guest episode, where we come up with a sequel to the Jimmy Neutron movie, is out, and it is very interesting. Uh, thanks for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Where I sit down to a lovely goose dinner with Jackson Eflin as we get to the Blue Carbuncle. Rivera to meet thy go.